Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through Ephesians, and in the previous message, I was in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I was describing three different kinds of people. I was describing the kind of person who is expecting to go to heaven just because of their self-existence, that they are going to boast before God the idea that I exist, I am here, therefore you had better give me salvation, you had better let me in to your kingdom of heaven. Or there is something wrong with you. You know, you have psychological problems because you're not being as loving as you really should be if you're a god. And then the second kind of person is the kind of person who does not really acknowledge the existence of God at all. And they will be a relatively true and honest kind of person, the kind of person who lives by a certain sense of integrity. And they will be able to compare themselves with these other people who do not And they take the position that if there is a God at all, if they end up before him, then they will be able to make it into the kingdom of heaven because they will be able to compare themselves with these other absolutely wicked and evil people by saying, you know, I'm not as bad as they are, and so I should have a place in the kingdom of heaven. They are boasting in who they are as a person in the sense that they are a relatively good person. And then you have the other kind of person, which is a religious person who does acknowledge the existence of God. They believe in Jesus. However, they believe that because of their obedience to God, either through the commandments that are given through the law or just because they are comparing themselves with other people who are not as good as they are, they will also boast before God As their way of entering into the kingdom of heaven, they will take the position that, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I was a good Christian. I believed in you. I did all of these things in your name. And so through that, you should give me a place in the kingdom of heaven. And none of this has anything to do with his kindness or his graciousness or his mercy. It has nothing to do with any of that at all. It all has to do with the individual person who, in effect, is presenting a claim before God that they should have a place in his kingdom, in his home, either because of their self-existence or because they were a relatively good person or because they were a relatively good person who added some religion to their life and some good works that are described through the Mosaic law or through the law of the church or through whatever that these are the ways that a lot of people believe they are going to be saved, or they would prefer to believe this, because the alternative is to live in the reality, is to live acknowledging the truth that they deserve nothing, that they really do have no hope whatsoever outside of the grace and mercy of God, and that this is hard for people to do, 
because they don't want to be known as a person who really is that wicked and that evil. They don't want to be known in that way. They don't want that reality to be exposed because it's hard. It's hard for us to live in the reality of that, to acknowledge the truth of that, that we are really the kind of person who has no hope outside of the grace and mercy of God and the grace and mercy of God alone. Like I said, that's very difficult. It's hard. People would prefer to either live in the lie, that's easier, or they would prefer to live on the basis of their pride by having something to boast in, something that they can claim and say, you know what, this is a little bit harder than being dishonest, dishonest in an absolute way, but at least I have something. It's easier than admitting complete fault, complete failure, it's easier than that. At least they have something that they can hold on to for themselves, that they can claim that somebody owes them for some kind of perhaps legitimate reason because they are kind of a good person, that these are the struggles that people are dealing with. But what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is that it's not about any of that at all. In verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But there will be very few people who will make it that far. There will be very few people who will accept the grace of God in this context because of the appeal of boasting. You will find these kinds of people in a lot of churches because the church provides a structure. It is, in effect, an institution that encourages people to come and assemble together with other people and become perhaps a better person. This is attractive. The institutions, the religious institutions, can be very attractive to those who want to have a sense of pride, who want to be able to boast in something, who want to be able to compare themselves with other people. So you will find a lot of people like this, like the third kind of person that I was describing. You'll find a lot of people in these kinds of institutions and churches and congregations because it provides them with an opportunity to boast, to compare themselves with others, to feel a sense of value that they would not be able to have in any other way. But again, this sense of value that people try to build up and foster and encourage in other people's lives as well, this sense of value is still not going to impress God. But like I've said before, there are a lot of people who do not really care so much about impressing God. They just want to impress others because there are other objectives that they have in mind in their lives. And for these kinds of people, you really have to consider each one individually and personally. At this point, I'm going to move on from this issue of boasting and pride and just mention these things in a general sense so that you can ask the question, why is this person here? You know, because you'll find that in a lot of churches, you will find the first kind of person who just 
believes that other people are to love them and accept them because of their self-existence. You have other people who are there. They don't care about God at all. They are only there because they are a relatively good person. They want to be around other good people. They want to enjoy the opportunities to compare themselves with those other bad people. And they're really there for business contacts or they're there to find a spouse or they're there just to have something to do for themselves or maybe their children. They have no real interest in God at all. They're only pretending to do so because they're taking advantage of and they're enjoying the benefits of being around other people who are a little bit more honest and have a little bit more integrity. And then you have the others who may very well have some deep convictions about the reality of God and they really want to know him, but they are so consumed with their own personal pride and their desire to compare themselves with other people that they will never really experience a legitimate and true relationship with God because he's not going to have anything to do with them. They may be able to have something to do with everybody else around them, but God is not going to really have much of anything to do with them at all because they are, again, they are not acknowledging their absolute depravity like they really need to in order to have honest and truthful conversations with God. And so that's the topic of boasting. I'm going to leave it there for now. That's verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I'm going to move on to the topic of salvation just in and of itself. And this, of course, is a very important topic because there are several different beliefs concerning salvation. All you have to do is ask. Ask a person, what is salvation? What is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? How will a person be saved? And you will find that there are a lot of different opinions about how that question should be answered. This is one of the reasons why we have a variety of churches. Just go to one and ask them, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Now, with that kind of a question, people will often give a similar answer, and that is something like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So just have faith in God, which means believe the truth that he has expressed, and respond to that, let that be incorporated within your life and make your decisions about your daily life, including this reality that you believe that there is a God, that you believe in the truth that he has revealed, and you will be saved. You'll be saved through your faith, through your belief in him, and that it is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. People will often start with that, but that's not where they usually end. What happens is, is that after that, well, now it's going to be about something else. It's going to be about how are you going to keep this salvation that you have received. Now, again, not everyone takes this position. There are some people who take the position that you'll never really know if you're going to be saved until until the end, you know. Between now and then, you just keep trying to do as much as you can to be right with God, to do the right things, and get the sin out of your life, and be a good person, and maybe you'll make it. There are some people, not very many, but there are some people who take this position that salvation is something that you'll never have any sense of surety about. You'll never be sure. You'll never be secure until the last day, and that's when you'll find out if you were good enough or not. There are some people like this, but for the most part, 
you'll find people who will say, okay, yeah, you can be saved. This is what you do. This is what you believe. This is the procedure. And if you follow this, well, then you'll be saved. But then comes the new subject of how are you going to keep your salvation? You know, how are you now going to be sure that you're going to be saved at the last day? And so instead of people struggling with the issue of how do you get salvation, the new struggle becomes how do you keep your salvation? How do you sustain your relationship with God? You may first be saved by grace, not of yourself, not based on your works at all. But if you want your salvation to be sustained, if you want your relationship with God to be sustained, if you want to make it, all the way to the end, well, you're going to have to get some works, get some good works in your life. There needs to be some works that demonstrate the faith that you have or, well, you just may not really be saved. You may think you are, but you're not. And we'll find out later. That's what most people are dealing with. They're not really struggling so much with How are you saved? Are you saved by grace or are you saved by your works? In general, people are struggling with the issue of how do you keep your salvation? How are you sustained in your salvation? And of course, if you stop doing all of the good works that you are expected to do, well, then people will just take the position that maybe you were never really saved to begin with. That's another way that people will address this. But what are these works that you are expected to do? Well, it just depends on the church. In general, you are expected to go to church. If you don't go to church, well, then you're probably not saved at all. There will be a list of sins that they will not want you to engage in. They'll make that clear, either in an absolute way or in an indirect way. They'll either give you the list or tell you to study it in the Law of Moses, or they will want this to be open-ended. And you'll find that a lot of congregations, a lot of Christian people will want this to be open-ended. So, of course, you need them in your life in order to monitor you and to make sure that you are doing whatever they think you should be doing and you're not doing anything that they don't think that you should be doing. And so the desire for an open-ended standard is very common. This is very appealing to a lot of folks because it allows for a greater sense of personal control that the leadership can have over their congregation because it's not as well-defined as you probably would prefer that it was well-defined, you know, something that is written down, such as what we have in the Mosaic Law. Instead, the leadership will want this to be relatively open-ended, so, of course, they can claim that we're not living by the law. Instead, you're living by whatever law they make up on whatever day or whatever hour that seems to be convenient at the time. This avoids the stigma that's usually associated with living by the Mosaic Law or a formal law of some kind. They will then be able to say, you're living by my graciousness in your life, by overseeing you and making sure that you're a good person according to my personal standard. And because it's so open-ended, of course, it's not the law. This is how a lot of people navigate through this issue and how they define the relationship that you now have with them and with your God, which is a relationship based on what you don't do and what you do do. And they will, of course, give you all the things that you are to do. And if you fail to do all that you are to do, well, 
you know, your salvation could be in question. It could be challenged. Maybe you're going to lose your salvation. So by default, what happens is, is that salvation indirectly becomes conditional on your works. It just ends up that way. And even though people will deny that to no end and with great enthusiasm, that's still the effect of what they teach and what people believe and how people function and how they live. They live in a contradiction. And you'll get the sense for that. All you need to do is spend enough time and pay attention close enough and you will eventually discover that there are contradictions in the way that people believe, in the way that they speak, in the way that they teach, in the way that they live. Lots of contradictions. And this is just one of them. The idea that you are saved by grace, but you are effectively sustained by your works. Now, there is only one solution to all of this that I am aware of, that I have found that is consistent and true and will resolve these issues without any question whatsoever. The only solution that I have found when it comes to all this confusion and all these contradictions and all these issues that people end up wrestling with, if they even care about them at all, like I said, in general, people are just looking for something to do or they're looking for an opportunity to build themselves up, have something to boast in, compare themselves with other people. People have other objectives in mind. But when it comes to the objective of salvation, when this is an honest and true topic that a person really wants to discuss, know about and resolve, to me, there's only one way to deal with it. And that is to define what salvation is, what is salvation. This needs to be understood. This is what really needs to be defined. And you'll find that for the most part, the most common representation of what salvation is, has to do with, okay, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, but you are sustained by your works. And your salvation will depend on what you do or you don't do. Let me give you an example. When a person first gets saved, what comes up next? It's usually now you need to engage in something like the first act of obedience. This is quite common. Just to give you an example of how people get around this issue of what salvation is. We now engage in the first act of obedience. And what is that? It's baptism. Engage in baptism. So, you believe in God, you've repented, you are embracing his complete forgiveness, but now you need to engage in the first act of obedience, which is baptism. This is a work. This is something that you do. If you don't do this, then you have now engaged in your first act of disobedience. And we're going to, of course, question whether or not you are saved at all. And so the effect of this is that your salvation is defined by not just his grace and mercy, but it's also defined by your works, by your obedience, by your doing the right thing and your turning away from the wrong thing. Now, of course, I have done a series of programs on the subject of baptism. There's a lot to say about that. And I would like to refer you to those programs if you're interested in that topic, because this is not the place for that. I'm only saying that in order to say that there is also the second act of obedience, and that's usually tithing. You're now to give your money to the church. 
That's your second act of obedience. And then there's going to be the third. And then there's going to be the fourth. There will be no end to what is your obedience supposed to look like. And if you fail to engage in these pursuits, well, you know, you might very well lose your salvation. Or we're going to say you were never saved to begin with. So the definition of salvation is a package deal for most people of believe in God And you had better engage in all these works that we say you should do or you are not welcome here. You're not accepted here. You are not a Christian. This is a common definition of what salvation is. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes salvation as being the restoration of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is being made alive. You have been saved because you have been resurrected from the dead through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You believed the truth of your condition. You believed the truth of his provision. And he has made you spiritually alive. That's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. No works, no nothing, nothing to do with your works, nothing to do with what you do or what you don't do. It has nothing to do with what happens after you have been resurrected from the dead. It has to do with being resurrected from the dead. And that is only realized through the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given. It is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. That is salvation. The definition of salvation is the giving by God, the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit, who will dwell within you permanently because there is no sin that will cause the Holy Spirit to ever depart from within you. Therefore, the life that is within you is by definition an eternal life. It is an everlasting life, something that you can experience right now and today and will carry you on into eternity even after you physically die. But what happens is that everybody then takes some kind of definition of salvation that might be similar to that or not. But whatever they do, they start out with some kind of definition and say, this is how you get saved. And then after that, you are told a number of things that negate what they told you previously. You are then presented with all kinds of contradictions in general. This, of course, depends on the individual congregation or the people who you are hanging out with. But in general, what I have discovered is that this is how people relate to each other. They start out with, by grace you have been saved, and then after that, the pressure is imposed upon you that it will now depend on your works according to how they define it. Now, I, of course, do have the conviction, the sincere belief that if a person is changed, that we would expect there to be a reduction of sin, the activities that people would consider to be works. I certainly will never argue something like that because I do believe that we would expect there to be growth and maturity and change and that these could be measured in different ways. But when it comes to salvation and your place in the kingdom of heaven It is only by being made spiritually alive. That is how you will have a place among the living. And I will continue with this in the next program.
You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.